morning. It's great to be in the Lord's house today, isn't it? It's good to see you here. My name is David Johnson. Uh, my wife Susan and I and our daughter Bethany and her husband and our three perfect granddaughters uh, are all members here at the church. And uh, it's, an, it's an awesome privilege for me to get to be a part of the teaching team here a couple of times a year. So thank you for that, Pastor Kenneth. Uh, we missed you and looked like you were suffering for Jesus down at the beach. I uh, want to welcome you to the service today. want to welcome those of you who are, who are watching with us via live stream. Uh, it's great to be a part of the family of God. It's great to be a part of the family called Westwood. Uh, I want to go ahead and set the stage for this talk today. This is a very different message for me. Uh, and yet I believe very clear that God gave me this message to share with you and with others as he has an opportunity for me to be able to do that in the future. So I kind of want to set the stage. I, I hope you have pulled up your app, uh, your Westwood app, and gone to resources and looked at the outline there because it's going to help us as we flow and follow along with the message today. So here's how I want to set the stage. The Bible uses physical examples to teach us great spiritual truths. And it takes this ancient text, this ancient writings, and we bridge it to the present. So we're going to be looking at this physical example that speaks to us in the present and also points us to some future happenings that we can look at and celebrate and be aware of their coming. Now, there are lots of examples, tons of examples in the scripture that are of these physical examples that teach us great spiritual truths. So there's the example of the farmers. You know, you look in the scripture, it talks about sowing and reaping. And so you can also see that the Bible talks about runners. Because Paul says you, you have this opportunity to run this race, to achieve the prize. You also have the example of fighters. Paul writes about fighting the good fight. Uh, also in the Bible is the example of fishermen. Matter of fact, you see all kinds of, of times when the fishermen are on the lake and they're fishing and all these things that are taking place. And Jesus says to the disciples, I want to make you what? Fishers of men. So Jesus wades into this kind of physical example because he calls himself bread. He says, I'm the bread of what, church? I'm the bread of life. He says, I'm water, that I give you living water. He says, I'm the gate to the sheepfold. He says, not only that, but I'm the shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. He says, I am the vine and you are the what, church? The branches. The word says he's not only a priest, he's the high priest. So we have all these incredible examples that teach us great spiritual truths and we're going to do that today with a wedding. As a matter of fact, I've titled this talk today, A Wedding Story. Now, I want you to take everything that you know and understand about a wedding, and I want you to remove it from your mind. Because we have this Western concept and understanding of a wedding. And let me just tell you, we're going to be studying a first century Jewish wedding today, 
And I promise you when we get done, you're going to go, wow, that looks like no wedding process I've ever seen before. And that would be true. So we're going to go back and we're going to look at what we can learn from the Jewish wedding in first century, apply that to the present and also look forward to the future. Now, there are some key roles that I want to identify right out of the gate so we'll know what we're talking about together whenever I make a particular uh, comment to someone who's a part of the narrative. So the father of the bridegroom, we're going to talk a lot about his role and responsibility. That spiritually, as it relates to spiritual truth and spiritual activity, is God the Father. So the wedding agent, and I'll talk about that in just a minute, is God the Holy Spirit. The bridegroom is God the Son, Jesus, and the bride is the church. So that sort of set the stage, so let's get going. So there are five steps, five steps that a Jew would go through in the wedding process. So let's get going. So step number one in the Hebrew is called the Shadukin. The Shadukin is the making of the match. It's the first step in the wedding process inside of Judaism. So there are four things that I want to bring out as a part of the Shadukin. The first is this, and if you were writing notes, you can write this down, uh, is the Shadukin was initiated by the father of the bridegroom. The Shadukin was initiated by the father of the bridegroom. So the father of the bridegroom and the groom and the family were always looking at others in their community, and they were looking at these two families going, is there an opportunity for a relationship? Is there an opportunity for a covenant relationship to take place between these two families? But it was always initiated by the Father. So we see that in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 6. Jeremiah is writing this letter to the Jewish leaders who've just come out of the exile. And he writes this, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. So here Jeremiah is saying to the fathers to give your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Just as the father of the bridegroom initiated that covenant relationship, so does God the father today initiate a covenant relationship with the groom, his son. How do we know that? Because Jesus said in a very familiar verse for all of us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Who initiated that? The father. Who's telling about that? The son. So just as it took place in the Shadukin, it also takes place in our culture, in our world today. The second thing that I want to call to your attention is that sometimes the father charged an agent to find a bride for the son. Charged an agent, in other words, someone working on the father's behalf to find a bride for his son. Now we see this in Genesis chapter 24. So Abraham sends his oldest servant, Eleazar. Do y'all remember that story? So he sends Eleazar back to his 
homeland. So look at what it says there, beginning in, I think, verse 2. And Abraham said to his servant, go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. And I want you to understand that even though God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is one and the same, they have different roles and responsibilities as they play in this overarching story, this overarching narrative. This agent had a role to play. He was charged to do that. Jesus himself talks about this in John 6, where he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. As the Father draws him, he's drawing us through his Spirit unto salvation. Jesus goes on to say in John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, listen carefully, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring remembrance all that I have said to you. God uses the Holy Spirit to draw us into a covenant relationship with him. The third thing I want to call to your attention is the choice of the bridegroom was given consideration. So in this first century, it wasn't an arranged marriage to the point that the bridegroom had no say because we see some evidences of this in Scripture. In Genesis Genesis 34, in the story of Shechem and Dinah, Shechem says, so Shechem spoke to his father, Hamar, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now, I don't know if you've read that story, but it's a powerful story. And and even though Shechem's beginning with Dinah was not honorable, the scripture says he loved her and he spoke tenderly of her and he chose her to be his wife. Let me just tell you, we don't choose Jesus. Jesus chooses us. You go, how, how do you know that? Because Jesus himself says in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but what church? I chose you. The third thing that I want us to talk about in this section is that there was actually consent given by the bride. So you see what's going on here. So you have the father of the bride, the the father of the groom gets involved, the father, uh, you know, so you have the bridegroom, you have the bride, you have the agent. All of this is a part of the shadukin. All of this is a part of making the match. And so, and they called Rebecca, they being her father and her brothers, call Rebecca. So Abraham has sent Eleazar, Eleazar has gone, And they give Rebecca a choice about whether to go and marry Isaac or not. So, and they call Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. You see, guys, the gospel is presented to us. We are asked to enter into a covenant relationship with Jesus. But make no mistake we must give an answer. Rebecca gave an answer to a man she had never met before. 
she in essence said, I will enter into a covenant relationship with him. I will enter into a love relationship with him, and I have never even seen him. Well, you go, wow, how does that relate to today? We know Peter writes about that. In 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, listen, the salvation of your souls. Because you see, we can see the evidence of Jesus around him, but we are coming to faith in him without ever really having been able to see him. Step two. So step one is the Shaduk, and step two in the Hebrew is the word mohar. The word mohar is a bridal payment. So the match has been made, the process has been started, and then a bridal payment is made. So the first point on the outline, and just for our consideration, number one under this section would be, payment was made to the father of the bride as a fulfillment of the law. So it was not just about their tradition, It was an accepted part of the law in the process of a Jewish marriage. So you see there in Genesis 34, verse 12. So this is Shechem. Shechem is talking to Dinah's father and brothers and says, Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So it was a regular part of their practice. It was a regular part of their tradition. It was a part of the legal part of the wedding process. Now, you may be asking the question, because I asked myself the question when I was studying this. Why did they give a bride price? Well, what I found out was because this family is giving up this daughter And this daughter's wage-earning capabilities, this daughter's work that she was doing within the family, all the things that she was doing in adding to the family when she marries is all of a sudden extracted from that. So this family loses a lifelong worker in the daughter The bride price was given so that she could go from this family to the bridegroom's family. And as a result of that, the bride price was paid. Let me tell you, Jesus does exactly the same thing. Because in Matthew 5, 17, he says, don't think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The paying of the bride price was a fulfillment of the carrying out of the law. The next step in this, in Matthew 28, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what church? A ransom for many. The ransom 
is the paying of the bride price. Jesus, when he shed his blood on the cross, paid for our sins in full. As a matter of fact, when he gets to the end on the cross, he says the word to telestai, it is finished. There is no more price that has to be paid. He has paid the bride price, church family, in full. No more payment needed. And then the step three is called the ketubah. The ketubah is the actual marriage contract. So the first thing I would say under point number one for our consideration is that Jewish marriages were legally formalized by a written contract. They were legally formalized by a written contract. Now, there are no, there's no direct evidence that I was able to find in Scripture that talked about the ketubah. But there's indirect evidence that I believe this is true. So when you look at Mark 10, verse 4, there's a legal document that had to be issued to end a marriage. So what does it say? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So if it required a legal written document to end a marriage, then it stands to reason that the ketubahs were signed and filed. As a matter of fact, I did some further reading about this, and there's a lot of extra biblical writing that says that this bridal or this uh, wedding uh, formal contract was written in triplicate. One went to the family of the bridegroom, one went to the family of the bride, and guess where the third one went? It went to the Sanhedrin, which blew my mind. So it's a legal document that's passed on to both of those families, and it also goes on to the Sanhedrin. Now, you may be going, well, man, David, what, what kind of legal document do we have? Well, the bride's written contract, us, the church, Our written contract is the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, that's where we see the new covenant. Now, I'm not minimizing in any way the importance of the Old Testament. Because we should study the Old Testament with equal enthusiasm as we study the New Testament. Because it's all about God's plan and we see how he works and is pointing everything to Christ. But when Jesus comes and shed his blood and issues in the new covenant, for us, that uh, union starts in the New Testament. So it's our contract. Paul actually writes in Romans 15, 4, he said, For what was written in former days were written for instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Okay, let's stop here for just a second. I know we've been rocking and rolling, so let's stop here for just a second and do a review. So the match has been made. There's all kind of pieces and parts to that, all kinds of roles and responsibilities to that. The bride price has been paid. The contracts have been written. Everything has been done. All that's left to be done is for the contract to be signed. This is an interesting thing that I found 
as we continue to kind of to study and talk about this. And Susan and I have talked a lot about this. But point number three, I want you to write this down. is the bride at this point in the process drank from what's called the cup of acceptance. So listen, guys, all of this work could be done. All of these steps have been completed. And it comes down to the place where the bride has the final say about whether she's going to accept the bridegroom or not. It's interesting in this, in this uh, tradition that it was actually the bridegroom that poured the wine in the cup. The bridegroom brings the cup. Jesus brings the new covenant. Jesus brings the cup of his blood. The bridegroom came to the bride and issued the cup, and she had the choice to drink of it or to reject it, which is exactly what the world has the same choice of as it relates to the gospel today. If she drank of it, if she accepted it, there was actually a ritual prayer that they quoted. And it's, blessed art thou, eternal our God, creator of heaven and earth, who has given us the fruit of the vine. Amen. So what a beautiful picture. This groom coming to his wife, pouring a cup of wine, Hopeful, excited, wanting to spend his life with her. Gives her the cup and she drinks from it. How do you think he felt right then? I think he felt right then the same way the father feels now. When someone accepts the cup and becomes a part of us who are believers, the bride. Wow. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So the question I have for you, the question I have for you who are listening today, have you drunk from the cup of acceptance? Have you said yes to the bridegroom's proposal? The only way you can be a part of the family of God is to say yes. So let me just stop right now again and say, at this point, they are legally married. When she drinks of the cup, they are legally married. But we come into step four, which is called the caduceus. The caduceus is the betrothal. Now, all of this has been really exciting for me as I've been studying this, as I'm getting to teach this. But let me tell you, this is getting ready to get world-class interesting. This is ready to get world-class exciting because the union has been made. There has been this covenant relationship entered into. And this is a way that it's hugely different than weddings and marriages in the West today. So everything's done. It's all legal. It's all complete. She goes back to her house and he goes back to his house. Pretty interesting, huh? So what's happening during this time? So first of all, I would call to your attention on the outline that the bridegroom goes back to his home to make preparation of the hoopah. 
Now, what is the hoopah? So he's going to go back to his home. They're going to choose a room in his home, or they're going to build a lean-to onto his house, or they're going to build a separate structure. So he's going back to his home to prepare a place for he and his bride to dwell. Now, let me tell you, as a former groom, now I know we've been married 44 years, but I can still remember back then. So I know I'm old, but I'm not so old, I can't remember. Because there's a cool part about this preparation in that as he goes back to prepare, he has to get this all prepared and it's under the supervision of his father. So he goes back and he, he prepares all of the places for her, for her to be able to come, for a, a place for them to spend their lives together. In John 14, 4, Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you just as the Jewish groom went to prepare a place for his bride? Guess what? Jesus has left this planet. He's gone to prepare a place for you. And if it were not so, he would have told us. Now, I can only imagine the difference in a humble Jewish room and the Jewish room that Jesus has gone to prepare for for us. Because, see, we have this idea that this book is a Western book. This book is an Eastern book. This book is a Jewish book. We're included in this book because as we accept Jesus, we're grafted in. So that's why it makes sense for us to look at this in an Eastern mindset. So the bridegroom makes the preparation. That's what he's doing at his house. The bride is in her house, and she purifies herself through the mikvah. Now, you're like, well, what is that about? So they're legally married, and they're not even living together. That's right. She's in her home preparing herself. She is making herself ready. What does she do during this time? She has made it clear that she is not open in any way to any other suitor. She has made it clear that she has separated herself, taken herself out of, given herself allegiance to her bridegroom. Not only that, she made it clear that she had not been with another man. There had not been impurity because the betrothal period was typically about 12 months in length. So that was able to say to the bridegroom, to the bridegroom's family, to the community, that she was pure, she was righteous, she was holy. She was preparing herself to unite with the bridegroom. What an amazing picture. Not only that, and the last part that I would say about this, is she took her her lamp And she made sure her lamp was filled with oil. She was making herself ready that at whatever point the bridegroom came, she would have the light that she needed to be able to travel with him. I'll talk about a little bit more of that in a second. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, 
And such were some of you, but you were washed. So he says, this was your condition before you said yes to the bridegroom, before you became a Christian. But now, here you are. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Here's a fact, church family, we don't want to miss. The church today is living in the time of the betrothal. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. We are preparing ourselves. We are making ourselves right and ready, and we're watching for the coming of the bridegroom. We, the church, are living in a time of betrothal. The fifth and final step is the, the nisuin. The nisuin in the, in the Hebrew uh, stands for the nuptials. It actually uh, uh, translates literally a taking. So when you see the word nisuin, you connect it to a taking. So the first point that I would say, if you're filling in blanks, this is such an incredible point. The bridegroom's father decides when the groom takes his bride. Let me tell you, you know, I, I think back to uh, when Susan and I got married, and I went like, okay, so I've got to go to prayer, prepare a place for her. I would have flown home. I'd have, I'd have made a box city, a cardboard box city, and I'd have gone back to get her. I mean, what do you mean I've got to wait 12 months? Are you kidding me? They waited 12 months. But listen what happens when the father sends his son to get his bride. It happens in the middle of the night. And in Jewish custom, it happens around midnight. So the bridegroom goes. He takes the wedding party with him. He stands outside the door. He's been preparing himself for her. She's been preparing herself for him. He stands out there and he gives a bridal shout. And someone in the party will blow a shofar. There's a shout and there's a blowing of a trumpet. He is going to claim his bride. What an incredible picture. Now, the bride does not know the exact time that her bridegroom is coming for her. Traditionally, it's somewhere around a year. Coming in the middle of the night, she doesn't know. She's to be preparing herself. She's to have the oil and the lamp because they come in the middle of the night. That is the same picture of the church today. Because Jesus said in Mark 30, 13, 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father, just like in first century Jewish wedding today or at some point in the future, there will be church, make no mistake, the bridegroom coming with a shout and the blowing of a trumpet. We as the bride must be ready because make no mistake, he will be ready. The timing will be perfect. We, the church, have to be made ready. Now, let me tell you. I grew up in Mobile, 
and I don't like Mardi Gras, and I don't like what Mardi Gras stands for, and we didn't participate in Mardi Gras. Um, but it makes me think about this parade, the Mardi Gras parades that go through the streets. When this bridegroom gets his bride, they're coming through the streets in the middle of the night, and I think the celebration makes Mardi Gras look tame. There's shouting, there's dancing, there's leaping, there's a celebration going on, not like, you know, I think any of us could even imagine. He gets her back to his home. Some of the extra biblical writings that I read said that they sometimes they even have like a small marriage ceremony. And then the couple goes into the room that's been prepared and they consummate the relationship. That is complete. It is finished. There is a seven-day celebration. As a matter of fact, if you remember, Jesus' first miracle was where he turned water into wine. It was at this wedding celebration that was going on in these seven days. Let me tell you something. We're going to be a part of a party in heaven unlike any party we could even imagine or dream. In Revelation 19.7, it says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. What an incredible physical example of an amazing spiritual truth. As I conclude today, there are two things. First, I want to give a warning. And then secondly, I want to challenge us to watchfulness. So the warning that I would give those of you in the room or watching uh, online is that if you have not said yes to the proposal of the groom, if you've not drunk from the cup of acceptance, then your eternity be one of pain and suffering. And yet God wants it to be an eternity of joy and incredible communion. I love the fact that the Bible says that today can be the day of salvation. So our prayer for you today is that you will drink from the cup of acceptance. For those of us who are already part of the church, we need to have a watchfulness because we need to be making ourselves ready. We do that by spending time in the Word. We do that by praying without ceasing. We do that by sharing the gospel. We do that by pursuing righteousness and holiness. We do that by keeping our oil lamps filled and ready and watchful so that when we hear the shout and we hear the blowing of the trumpet, we will be ready to respond.